Welcome to Finding Joy with Live Love App. Join us for thoughtful commentary on software development, design, and news of the week, all while finding absolute joy in our lives. So Mike, you're back in Huntsville. I'm back in Huntsville, Alabama. It's 90 degrees and humid, and it's been thunderstorming all morning. And I just missed my Portland 78 degree blue sky, legendary summer. Yes. Yeah. It's funny. A lot of people think of Portland. It is a very moist climate in the Pacific Northwest, but the summers are actually quite dry, right? Yeah. It's, it's kind of cool. Like, so you have these like mild, dry summers. So it's, it's quite comfortable. Yeah. But tell us more about your, tri- your trip to Huntsville. So you, so you landed in Huntsville. Yes. I had to take a red eye flight. That's the most common flight that Delta offers to get back to Huntsville. Okay. Uh, so I got to Huntsville at 8 a.m. yesterday morning. Excellent. And I was so excited. I rented a Tesla Model Y from Hertz because Hertz oh. bought a whole fleet of Teslas. Yeah, they bought like a hundred, did they a hundred thousand yeah. Teslas or something crazy, which is awesome. That's right. And so I was like, this is great. I've already got a charger at my house in Huntsville. I'm just gonna get a model Y. It's gonna be a great moving car. I'm here in Huntsville. You get zipper stuff. You zip gotta around, zip around home. Yeah. Be yeah. perfect. I mean, plus, how do you get coffee in Huntsville, right? You can't just walk. No, you can't just walk. There's not like a corner store nearby. You know, I've actually got to drive places in Huntsville, unlike Portland. So I went to the Hertz counter after my red-eye flight, having gotten no sleep, and I asked for my Tesla. And something you should know, Brian, is I sold my car, and so I don't actually own a car anymore. That's right. Um, So I don't have car insurance. But what I do have is something called non-owner's car insurance. And okay. so those Jeep Renegades that we talked about on a previous episode that I zip around in. Right. Um, so the idea is that if I'm ever in a rental car, either for work or for personal use and something happens, Smart. I've got non-owner's car insurance that covers it. Got it. So I go to the Hertz counter. It's like, well, for the Teslas, you need to show me proof of insurance. I said, that makes sense. Like, okay, yeah, that, sure. Okay. And actually I happen to have insurance, even though I'm in a weird situation. So I sent her okay. the email with my car insurance and she's looking at it. She's like, it doesn't say the word comprehensive anywhere on this. And I was like, well, it's non-owner's insurance. It's comprehensive for rental cars. That's what it is. It's designed for this situation. It's like, well, it okay. doesn't say the word comprehensive anywhere. I'm like, well, I can't get comprehensive car insurance because I don't own a car. Mike, you just edit the PDF, bro. You just I'm so tired at the counter. <laughs> okay. So you're at the counter. It's 8 a.m. You just got off a of red eye. Right. So I'm just trying to explain to this nice woman who's just doing her job. She's just trying to of follow course. the no, procedures. Yeah, of course. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You do recognize that because I don't own a car, I can't get an insurance product that says comprehensive on it. And she's like, well, then I cannot give you the Tesla. And I said, and I... I felt the anger in me, <laughs> took every bit of me to practice my emotional intelligence. And I said, thank you. Please cancel my reservation. I'm not going to need a car. And I just walked away from it without a car. Wait, wait they won't rent you a car. It's not the, okay. They I might have rented was- me a non-Tesla, but my, my lack of sleep and my emotion. Already, it was, done. I was not in a state where I could articulate the need for an alternative vehicle with this woman in a way that had been polite that I would have been proud of later. So it was just yeah. best for me to exit that situation. I think that was the wise thing to do. Yes. And I got a lift home, took a little power nap, woke up and called enterprise and got a different car for the, for the trip, a Toyota Tacoma. So I have a car. Uh, I just, Okay needed to take I, a little bit of a break from that situation and got it cool down uh, earlier before we started recording you said that you ended up getting a tacoma i thought it was your buddy ug's tacoma i thought you maybe yeah. the story was going oh you said you know what <laughs> gave gave hertz some random finger on your hand and declared it in the air <laughs> Can I just go to side rant? Isn't it weird that like somehow we point our fingers at people and we expect them to know that we're upset at them? Like, what if I gave you like like a, th- a toe? What if I put my toe up in the air? <laughs> what would you do? Would you be like, well, you know what? You too, mister. Would you return the toe? Would you give me a toe yeah. back? Would you give me a toe back? Toe? I don't know. But anyways, <sighs> so you said, I just said, I'll go to, I'll, I'll go to Enterprise. Cancel my reservation. I'm done. Okay. Uh, as a side note, this podcast is not sponsored by Enterprise or Hertz. Just so you know, or that or Hertz. 
we have nothing to do with these companies other than we I'm I'm honestly a little disappointed because I thought when Hertz when they announced this, I was like, this is great. This is gonna be great for EVs, it's gonna be great for you know, climate, all of this. It's like this is a really great move. Yeah. Uh, but that's unfortunate. The whole so Hertz didn't really care about well, the insurance. I'm a longtime Hertz customer. I have Hertz gold status. Of course um, you do. And as you know, I've rented some fun cars from Hertz. I've driven to Bend in some fun cars that I have gotten from that company. And never has my insurance product of choice been a problem in getting a rental car. And I explained that to this woman Interesting. that I am a valued Hertz customer and I've never had this problem. And she said that it was a local franchise rule and not a Hertz specific policy. Okay. So Got this it. is the local Huntsville, Alabama Hertz has decided that this is a requirement for taking a Tesla and not a Hertz across the nation problem. So understood. I would say that if you would like to rent a Tesla from Hertz, by all means do it, just not in Huntsville if you don't own a car, which that's the reason you might rent a car is you don't own one, to be clear. Or you're traveling. I would think that you're probably in a small slice of the pie in terms of percentage of people that show up at that counter with a non, with insurance for a non vehicle, whatever that's called. Right. Non-owners insurance. Yeah. I'm probably a very, very unique market segment of the people who are trying to rent Teslas when I travel, but doesn't actually own a car. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, can I say that, you know, HSV is the number one rated small regional airport in the country and it's gone down a notch. It's gone down a, just a small (laughs) notch, not the Hertz counter. That's not the number one part of the number one small regional airport. <laughs> Understood. Got it. So but everything else is great. It's just, you got to be careful. With the you know, it's, it's funny that it's I like, got a Tacoma. That's all that matters. You know, like, but our experience in life sometimes is so based on who we interact with. And I'm not saying anything poor about, I'm sure that this person, again, was doing their job. This is what they were right. told to do. They're trying to check the box. They're trying to, you know, whatever it is. It's possible that you could have rolled up five minutes later and talk to perhaps somebody else doesn't matter who but somebody else and you would have said here's my insurance they said oh usaa boom done great here's your keys go or whatever yeah, your card yeah see you later right and just like you know what i mean so um yeah and, and let's be honest here i'm here to move things and so a toyota tacoma is honestly <laughs> a bit more practical <laughs> a far more practical of a uh, vehicle for moving yeah. large furniture and yeah. things like that so I would yeah. say that this has worked out for the best, but uh, it was a moment of me having to really try my hardest yeah. to, to bear, be, to be the polite person I want to be in the world and not yeah. perhaps be tired, red-eye Ryan. Yeah. Well, I think you made the right decision there in the end. So, yes. um, okay. What do we got for, let's, we good there. Let's jump into news of the week. Yeah. What do we got? We've got a number of items that we were hoping to talk about. I know there's a lot of activity around Deno. Am I saying that right? Is it Dino, Deno? Dino. Well, it is a dinosaur theme. So Dino kind of sounds like a little dinosaur character. I don't know. Well, you know, it's just the word node shifted by two letters. It is. That's right. Yeah. I, you know, is it GIF, GIF, Dino, Deno, Vite, Who could Vite? Say. Who knows? Yeah, I thought we might talk about Deno today. Uh, there was an interesting discussion on Twitter that we came across about do you need algorithm knowledge as a junior developer? And I thought yep. we might talk a little bit about some type magic behind some of the new NGRX APIs. That's right. And you wrote a blog post about that. So we'll talk about that at a high level. And then people that want to kind of dive into that can go check out the blog post. That's right. All right. All right. Let's dive in. Let's talk about Deno. Yeah. So for those I've not heard of Deno before. It is from, is his name um, Ryan Dahl, I want to say? The original That's creator correct. of Node.js. That's right. He started Deno, it's been a couple of years at this point. As... Yeah, he did a keynote. Didn't he did kind of do, did this kind of come off of a keynote at like a Node conference? And he was like, here's the things yeah. that kind of frustrate me with my Node. And I don't think it was like personal. It was kind of just like, here's some of the things I would do differently. And so he was like, well, I'm going to go do it differently. <laughs> That's my understanding. Is that kind of how it played out? Right. Um, And so it's grown a good bit since then. It's an alternative runtime for JavaScript on the server. Um, It's all in TypeScript. So it's actually TypeScript first runtime. 
It includes a TypeScript transpiler kind of built into that. It handles dependency resolution um, and dependency management in a way that's fairly different from NPM and the Node ecosystem in general. Yep. Um, and it's growing and is raising capital and has a whole bunch of new tools and frameworks coming out all around it. Um, yeah, so I thought we might awesome. just kind of highlight that, uh, you know, I it's gone from this project a couple of years ago mm -hmm. to something that seems to really be gaining steam and might be worth developers looking into now that it's raised $21 million in investor capital. Yeah, that's incredible. And you um, talked about one of the new kind of packages is coming along with it. I think it was at Fresh. That's right. So uh, Fresh is a uh, web framework that's built with Deno. So kind of a, I think it's still kind of beta-ish. So I don't know if I would go grab for it right away, um, but really focused on the, you know, computing at the edge and, you know, really fast startup, um, you know, and you write everything in TypeScript um, and in Deno. And it kind of gives you a framework around Deno. Um, and I think it's by the same team. So I'm pretty sure kind of coming out of the same team that's developing that. So it looks exciting. Uh, it's got a, you know, you kind of use the, D, the Deno CLI uh, and you can start it up. Um, and then you're kind of up and running. So uh, it looks to be really interesting um, in terms of, you know, it includes things like routing and data fetching, dealing with like forms, kind of some of the things that you think about when you think about a web framework. And it's not just um, like routing stuff like that. It's it's full-blown like server-side rendering plus front-end interactivity, right? I believe so. Um, also, can I just say, looking at the documentation page, I love the little animation. Uh, yeah, the drip. Yeah, it has a little lemon for a logo and the lemon is dripping, dripping. lemonade. And yeah. it's got a really cute little animation and the Deno yeah, dinosaur sipping on some lemonade. Yeah, it's pretty good. So I have yet to use the framework, but I like the landing page. <laughs> <laughs> the animation's I mean, got a soul. Yeah, you gotta, you know, you gotta have good docs. And so I think that's really important. Um, do you know if Deno uses the TSC compiler underneath the hood or do I they kind of, it, yeah. it still does. That's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's got like basically native support for TypeScript, but it's running all that through TSC uh, to make all that magic happen. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so would you get started? Would you use Deno or Fresh in a new project today? Or is it ready for prime time? What do you think? It feels like it's getting a lot closer to that. You know, have we talked about Quick on this podcast yet? I think we might have. We have not. No, I don't think we've, we, maybe we've mentioned it in terms of like hydration and yeah. using Quick, uh, which is a, uh, what Builder.io and um, Mishko, who was kind of one of the main pioneers around Angular, right. has kind of started this new Quick framework. Mm -hmm. um, but what were you thinking? How does this relate to Deno? Well, it, it just, to me, Quick is a framework that runs server side and on the front end and is kind of right. you know, trying to run or leverage edge computing for ultra fast web experiences. And yep. Fresh is very similar in that way. Um, mm -hmm. A big part of Deno's $21 million raise was that they really want to continue to invest in uh, Deno Deploy as mm -hmm. an at the edge deployment solution for Deno framework or for mm -hmm. Deno apps. And so Deno mm -hmm. Deploy plus Deno Fresh, it's giving mm -hmm. me very similar vibes to Quick and other tools in this space or new frameworks that are really trying to leverage edge computing plus server-side rendering and client-side mm -hmm. hydration for these mm -hmm. ultra-fast um, experiences. And I didn't, I didn't think mm -hmm. we talked about MPAs versus SPAs. And, that's right. Um, this is definitely one of those tools that's kind of blending or trying to get the best of both worlds to hopefully provide better user experiences. So I'd say, yeah, give it a try. It seems like it's really maturing up. A lot of mm -hmm. activity around it. Been around for a couple of years now. Um, what about you? Would you use it at this point? You know, I need to go back and double check some of the docs. I think when I, the last time I looked at it, which was probably pre-V1, I would assume now that they've got a V1 release that it's, it's ready for production. Um, but I know that there was still some things that were kind of missing um, 
uh, I don't think it was Fetch because I know Fetch just landed in No not long ago. Um, but I think that there was kind of my original concerns were around, um, you know, kind of what is supported. You know, if I'm going to use file system access or Fetch or buffers or whatever it is, like, is it all there yet? Um, so I think I'd have to take another look at the docs. Uh, and kind of see if everything's kind of ready to go. Because yeah. um, the last time I looked, it was like, we're working on this. And it was like, okay, well, that's fantastic. But, you know, with partial support for file system access, I'm not sure if I can commit to using a server-side framework without having kind of all my tools at my disposal. So uh, it certainly looks like it's moving in that direction. Funding is always good. Uh, a, a framework, like, I mean, things are definitely getting warm there. So I think I would probably, the next time I was going to be working on something like this, I would definitely do, I would include Deno in my comparison, right? As an architect, I'm, if I'm looking at all the kind of options out there, I would look at things like Deno or Remix or Quick or some of these other solutions if they're going to kind of meet that use case um, based on what I'm trying to accomplish. Yeah, one of the things I think I appreciate about demos from my limited experience playing around with it is they seem to try and adhere a lot more to web API specs. Yes, um, they for do. a lot of their built-ins versus where yep. I feel like when Node came around, the there web no specs. didn't have a great story around. Right, right. We didn't Batch. have fetch in the browser when right, Node came exactly, around. and right. so Node had to kind of come up with its own way for handling. Yeah, um, you know, network yeah. requests and responses, whereas Deno get to lean on a lot of the things that have come out they on the since then, like yep. service workers and fetch. And so the yep. experience of building server-side apps in Deno is going to feel mm -hmm. very familiar if you're a web developer who's been writing JavaScript for the web for a while. And so that's yeah. another area where I'd say consider Denos if you're looking at your engineering team. Right. You have a lot of proficiency on the website of JavaScript. Yep. Figure yeah, I agree. Have a lot more skill transfer to server-side Deno than you would server-side Node.js. Correct. Plus, Deno uses JSX, right? So you're not using handlebars or some sort of other templating thing. You know what I mean? Like, you know, for all of that, it just feels like a more modern stack of like, okay, you know, I know JSX, I've got, you know. And TypeScript and Fetch. and Yeah. And it's super fast. I've, I've seen some demos. It's super fast, uh, very easy to get started with. Um, and just having native TypeScript, it just feels like a nice progression. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. We have all of, it's almost like, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here, but it seems like we've kind of got some like next kind of, as we move into this kind of next generation of frameworks and next next generation of tooling around things, you know, we've already mentioned Deno and we've got Vite and all of these kind of, you know, Rome or ES build and you know, native module support in the browser. It kind of feels like that's Web3 and maybe Web3 isn't what the crypto folks are pushing for. Like, you know what I mean? Like a D, like you almost got like a, a progress, like an, instead of like, it's like evolutionary into these other tooling and, and we've got that, that pathway, if you will, of like the future of the web. And then we have this like, quote unquote, perhaps revolutionary, uh, like innovative, like, decentralized apps or dApps right. and crypto blockchain style stuff. It'll be interesting to see in the coming years kind of where people kind of gravitate. I would venture to say it's probably the former rather than the latter. And I think we're going to be moving more towards, you know, better developer ergonomics and tooling and all of this, you know, edge compute, really fast spin up times um, where we're able to build really great experiences using you know, these new technologies rather than completely different experiences using completely different te technologies. And maybe those paths will cross in some sort of future, but it'll be certainly interesting to watch it play out. Absolutely. Um, yeah, if I were to start thinking of words that I would use to describe Mike Ryan's version of Web 3.0, it's definitely edge computing and resumable yep. web applications. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, service workers installability, things like that. Way more than I would use words like would, would you call that crypto. Let's let's get to the nuance here. Would you call that web two point five? 
what what version <laughs> would you label this? Is this a, I mean, there's no breaky changes, so we don't have to do a cut a major here. Right. Well, I say we, I guess we just got to do the angular thing and skip version three. Well, let's call this web. Let's go to four. Web 4.0. You know what? We, let's just, <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Like, <laughs> I think it's a great idea. We can let the, I'm going to say crypto bros. That's a little, I know it's a loaded term. We'll let the crypto bros own web three yeah. and web four will be this, yeah. this other evolutionary process. Yes, a, a big evolution of the existing tools and frameworks Tooling that we've got to provide. And I think just generally much better user experience yeah. as friend users. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Plus, let's be honest, most of those users are going to be familiar with that experience and maybe not so familiar with like a blockchain type experience or something like that. I don't, I don't know. We'll see. See how Wait, it plays you, out. Are you saying that, that these blockchain technologies aren't going to radically improve the user experience for end users? Uh, I don't know if it'll be, you know, I, I don't want to step on my toes here, uh, but I don't know if it's going to be a different user experience as perhaps maybe a different experience entirely, right? And and maybe I that's my lack of understanding. I need to learn more, I'm sure. Um, so don't hate me. Uh, but I do think, I think there's, with that said, I think there is opportunity in a lot of software spaces for things like blockchain, especially when it comes to things like uh, traceability, accountability, reduction trust. in fraud, trust, all of that stuff. You know, my wife is an auditor, for example, like it's insane. The things that they have to do to audit companies like bank statements and paper trails and all of this stuff feels very archaic. Where in my mind, I'm like, well, this would be like kind of a perfect use case for blockchain because you can see everybody who made any sort of change here and everything is built on that trust. Yep. Um, but we'll see. Um, so that's Deno. Go check it out. You can go to deno.land, Denoland, uh, to get more info on that. And then you can go to fresh.deno.dev to get some more info on the, uh, the new web framework uh, by the Deno folks. So definitely exciting stuff in that regard. Yep. Let's see. So next up, I want to talk about this tweet from one of my friends in the community, Preston Land. He's a Google developer expert and has been um, you know, in the Angular space for a couple of years now. I think he is an author for Thinkster. And I know he's a panelist on the NGXB show. And he had this tweet, and I think Brian and I are going to disagree about this to some degree, which is why I'm so excited about this tweet. Let's do it. Um, so the tweet says, is array.sort in JavaScript a nested for loop under the covers asking for a friend? And the context for this was that his brother was in an interview and was asked to add the two largest numbers in an array using JavaScript. Mm -hmm. His brother answered the interview question saying that he had sorted the array, so sort it numerically, and then add mm -hmm. the last two items together to add or sum up the two biggest numbers in the array. And the interviewers told Got his it. brother that that'd be too inefficient. Um, using big O in notation, it'd be O in squared to perform this task. Um, instead, this could be solved by looping through the array just one time, Once. keep track of the two largest numbers, and then add them up at the end. Whereas yep. by sorting, you're kind of sorting it all, you do this big sorting algorithm, and then adding the last two numbers. Got it. Um, so I guess it kind of raised an interesting question to me, which is that if you're a junior web developer, okay, do you need to know what big O notation is and have an understanding of algorithms and algorithm science to be a junior web developer? Let's put some context on this before we get okay. into it. Define in your terms, and maybe yeah. we can come to a conclusion together. Define, and I don't really like junior, senior. Define an entry level. Let's call it entry level instead of junior. Yeah. That's okay. Define what you mean by an entry level web developer. What are they, like, give me an example of like maybe some of the tasks that might be assigned to them. And what are they expected to be able to accomplish uh, on their own or in a pairing collaborative type session? Yeah, I think that's a great question. To me, an entry level developer um, probably needs active mentorship from a senior engineer or a more senior engineer. Okay. They should be able to complete a limited set of tasks on their own. 
but I would okay. not expect an entry level developer to be able to complete a full feature on their own without. But the they should be able to do some subtasks of that feature, right? So okay. if I've got a, I've got a banking application and I need to have a open a new account feature, I can't say, hey. Susie, I want you to build a new account feature and expect Susie to just accomplishes it, accomplish it in some number of days or sprints or whatever it is. I would expect maybe perhaps if Susie, if I work alongside with her, maybe kind of break things down into smaller tasks and Susie can be like, okay, I'll create the, the form that will gather the customer's information and pass that off to the back end, do some validation, whatever else is a part of that. So maybe in that example, that would be a, something that you would expect this entry level web developer to be able to accomplish. Is that correct? That's correct. That's how I, that's how I view an entry level developer. What about you? Okay. Does that match up with your understanding? It does, I, that does match up with uh, my understanding of an entry uh, level developer. I would hope that in the context, I hope that they're not on their own uh, though. I know that in some really small companies, you might be an entry, you know, kind of getting started in web development. You might be on your own and there's not somebody for you to pair up with or to work with. Uh, so you might be tasked with an entire feature um, and then you'll have to just kind of figure it out. A lot of Googling, you know, Stack Overflow, you know, collaborating maybe through things like Slack or Discord. Uh, but I think that generally lines up with what I would kind of expect for an entry-level developer. I would say in terms of years of experience, and I know that's kind of a fluid number, but I would say somewhere around zero to two you know, somebody who's either just out of a boot camp or college or potentially self-taught, uh, maybe they've done some web development uh, before, but kind of maybe an internship or something like that. So they might have like six months or something or a year of experience, but certainly in that kind of getting started in the, um, the industry. So I think we agree on that. Yes. So now let's talk about algorithms. this idea of knowing algorithms. Yeah. Okay, so go I, think, ahead. I think it's probably worth defining on what I would say what I believe to be a base level understanding of algorithms. Um, okay. I would, not ex I would not expect, I feel like there needs to be an intro level understanding of what algorithms are. And I expect an entry level developer to be able to write algorithms by hand necessarily or come up or innovate on new algorithms. But I would expect them to be able to understand or evaluate algorithms in, times of, in terms of time complexity or memory complexity how memory intensive is an algorithm going to be or how long is an algorithm going to take to run at a very, in a very general way. So maybe let's, what if we just take the word algorithm out of that sentence? So we, okay. what you expect is uh, I can look at some code yes, and I should be able to gauge with some, you know, I might have to study it or whatever, but I'm going to study some code and I should be able to gauge how much the, what the runtime performance, I think that's what you meant by time. CPU yeah. time, clock time, yep. and also memory consumption or memory usage of said block of code. Right. And maybe compare two blocks of code and say, well, this one uses less or more of one of those. Right. Okay. So now that we've taken algorithm almost kind of out of the picture, what you're saying is you would expect an entry-level developer to do that. Yes. I would expect an entry-level developer after coming out of their college program or boot camp to be able to look at a piece of code and have a rough understanding of its performance characteristics in terms of CPU time or memory. Okay. I think I'm going to agree with you partially on that, but I'm going to disagree that you need to know that in order to be an entry level web developer, okay. because let's go back to my example. Uh, I'm working with Mike. Uh, or Susie's working with Mike on this new account creation feature, and you've tasked Susie to go and create the, uh, you know, the start your account page. I'm going to enter my name, whatever my social, or these types of things um, to kind of gather that information off, maybe do some validation, send it to the server. None of that requires knowing anything about memory consumption, uh, I don't think. And none of that actually requires knowing anything about performance, probably, because you're not really doing a lot. I mean, unless it's a lot of data, but it's just a form, right? I think right. what that requires is you need to know the forms, kind of how forms work. You need to know how to do some validation. Um, you know, you probably already have some tools at your disposal. I don't expect you're writing like an email regex expression, right? right? Um, but I think that you could probably grab at a couple of things. And grab, I mean, like, you know, assemble some 
some libraries or some packages and kind of get things set up. And I think you could create that form, gather that input, validate that, and set it off to a backend. And I think you do all of that without knowing the time or the memory parts. I agree with you um, for that banking application. However, I think at Live Love App, we have clients that aren't banking applications that I can think of, either in like sports simulation spaces or in IoT spaces where their web applications don't really aren't really as form driven as a banking app might be. Okay. And so what our entry level developer have to do if they say needed to add some code to one of these applications um, or extend a feature in one of these applications where runtime performance does matter. So I think that's the, that's the difference, right? Is in your banking app, you, when you're building those features out, you're not really considering runtime performance. Right. Right. It's not coming up when you're building forms or interacting with forms. I hope. I'm sure you could probably build these forms in a way where runtime performance is pretty bad. But I think <laughs> generally you're going to be on Rails and be able to implement these forms in a way where performance is pretty good in most frameworks. I would say that if you're in a team, here's here's my pushback on that. If you're in a team where you're working on an app like that, I think an entry level developer could go out and work on some you know some small tasks around that feature. And then work with somebody who's got some more experience to kind of gauge that performance. You know, go into Chrome DevTools, run a performance audit, look at the flame graph, kind of look at the frame rates, kind of look at bottom up, you know, tree call stacks, kind of take a look and see what's going on um, to kind of give it a, a general like, this is, what, here, this is good or this, here's how we can improve this. You know, here's some low hanging fruit type of stuff. I just wouldn't expect an entry-level developer to be able to use the performance tab in Chrome DevTools. I don't think that's what I'm saying either, but let's, let's take another, I think, reasonable example. Let's say that we were writing an NGRX application. Okay. We wanted to write a selector, and that selector was going to take a big list of items okay. and use the reduce operation to transform that list of items into maybe a dictionary instead. Yep. Yep. And I, as an intro developer, might naively reach for array.reduce, and I'm going to yeah. allocate a new object each time reduce gets called. Okay. I've done this. Like I'm going to use, Go use the spread operator inside of my reduce yeah. to create yeah. a new object every single time. Yeah. And what I've done is I've, you know, for maybe 100 items, this is fast. But for 10,000 items, the garbage yeah. collection thrash here is so yeah. bad that the selector is really slow. Correct. And I've done, I've made this mistake too. So I'm calling that. So I think this is a mistake that maybe you and I have each made. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Should an entry level developer be able to articulate that problem or know about it? Hmm. That's an easy maybe. trap to fall into. It is an easy trap to fall into. Uh, and I hear you. I would also push back and just maybe ask this question. And I'm kind of, I am pushing back here. I wonder how many people come out of a boot camp that actually know how to use array.prototype.reduce. Sure. I mean, or I, I'm not trying to be up on my high horse. Like, I think in general, like, it's just some people will just be like, let new dictionary equals empty object for var i equals zero i lesson r dot length i plus plus. You know what I mean? Right. And huzzah, right? Which gets the job done, let's be honest. And I think that's like, to Preston's point, is like, do we need to understand what array.sort does underneath the hood or array.reduce and how we use that to actually get in and to do our jobs as, uh, you know, entry-level developers? Right. Um, and, and uh, you know, it's kind of interesting because I, as Preston narrates the story, he mentions that the interviewer says that's too inefficient because it's O N squared using array.sort. And one of my first thoughts was, well, not really. I don't. It's only, it's only O N squared in worst case. And average Correct. is actually a lot faster than that. Correct. Um, so I think even the interviewer might. Well, it depends on, the, depends on your initial state of the array. Right. If, you know, if the largest item's at the end, then yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, my understanding is that Chrome uses quick sort underneath the hood for numeric arrays. Yeah, um, and so average case and best case performance for the quick sort algorithm is in log n, not n squared. Yeah, um, 
So even, yeah. even the interviewer probably doesn't have like the firmest grasp of what's going on with the radar sort. And that's probably yeah. a senior developer uh, giving these interview questions. I would bet. This entry level developer. And so I to me, bet. there's also a little bit of a dichotomy there of like, well, actually, I don't even know if the interviewer has a full understanding <laughs> of, kind of what's going on underneath the hoods here. Right. Um, so maybe it is unfair to think that an entry level developer should know this if the interviewer doesn't fully have their head around it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know big O in notation? It's been a yes, I learned it. And so, you know, it's funny because in the beginning you were like, oh, somebody coming out of, you know, like computer science school or boot camp. I, I'm probably old school and don't hate me for this either. Okay, don't hate me for the crypto comments. Don't hate me for this. But I think when you go through a more traditional computer science school, whether you like it or not, they kind of teach you this stuff. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I had to take a data structures class and an algorithms class. And so then you really get into like, okay, all that, the nuance, the details of like the, the you know, how many bytes is this taking? Where is this going? Where is that being pushed to all right. of that? And then you do learn the big O uh, notation, though I kind of getting old. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember all the details. And so it's been a while, um, you know, kind of getting into that. So I'm familiar with it, but it certainly has been um, a while in terms of kind of looking at some of that. Because right. frankly, I just don't, I, have, I haven't needed to, right? Right. Um, so, well, yeah. You know, one, of, one of my good friends, and I won't, I won't name them out of respect since I'm using them in this way. Um, they maintain a very large successful open source project and they have done so for many many years and it's dependent on by very large web applications and they came from a non-traditional background and have no knowledge of big o notation and yeah. is one of the best developers that i know in the web space and one of the one of the kindest open source yeah. authors that i know of and so i don't think you know i could i could be convinced either way um and i'm going to give you my real answer now okay I think this is a bad question because we don't know what company this entry level developer applied for. That's true. And what is the position? If I'm applying for a position that's in a space that I need to understand this for versus right. if I'm not, right? Yeah. You know, what are the requirements of the job? And is this question appropriate way to measure a candidate's knowledge to be able to meet those tasks or those requirements of a job description? Yep. Yeah, if, they, if this person was interviewing at the banking company that we were talking about, and this was the question. Why are you asking me this why question? Why are you even asking this? It's really not going to be relevant yeah. to the day-to-day -day of yeah. the job. Whereas if they yeah, apply for some of our other clients that runtime performance matters a lot, maybe it's fair. Yeah, maybe it's fair. That exclusionary question, I might judge them more based on how they respond to being pointed out that there's a fast way to do it. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. It feels like a flex. I got to be honest. feels this like... It feels like a flag. It's like, well, you should have done it this way. And this is why. And the big O notation is this and blah, 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 blah. And I'm doing a male voice because I'm going to go ahead and assume it was probably a dude. Right. But I also think you're reading, you know, I, I've, been, I've interviewed for web development jobs um, where I was going to be working on tooling and performance that tooling mattered a lot. And I was asked much harder algorithms questions than this one for those right. jobs because the performance right. mattered a lot for those positions. Yeah. Um, I remember one job I had to implement a solution to the in Queens problem live in front right. of we were using React. And that was recorded because it was such a performance sensitive tool yeah. that I was trying to get on the team for. Yeah. So yeah, if Preston's brother was applying for one of those kinds of companies, I think the question's fair and reasonable. Just to right. figure out like, do you have a base level understanding of algorithms? Because it's going to matter a lot here. Yeah. Yeah, I think back to your point is really what maybe you're trying to gauge, and I don't know if this is a good question for it, but you're trying to gauge what you said, you know, does this candidate have, you know, knowledge and proficiency in understanding the memory and runtime performance implications of code? Yeah. Right. So. Anyways, that was an interesting question. Appreciate Preston for tweeting about that and bringing up this discussion. Um, you know, I think there's gonna be a time where you and I get to hire an engineer for a live love app one day in the future. And we're gonna have to think a little bit about, you know, what is, what are the requirements to be an engineer at live love app? This, mm -hmm. this question might come up between us again. Yeah. It's interesting. I think it also is, are you hiring for really it's, it's, what are you trying to, you know, what are you trying to uh, deliver to your clients and kind of what is the position? 
Yeah. And then also sometimes, you know, you, people, maybe they, they don't know this, but they show a really great response to it and they're really open to learning and to kind of growing their skill set. So um, that can also be a good way to kind of gauge kind of uh, real world job performance, which is a whole nother topic too, because answer asking these types of questions may or may not have any impact on how the person actually performs in their job. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, a lot of uh, our jobs is uh, communication and, uh, you know, task orchestration and, you know, collaboration, uh, much more so than writing efficient sorting algorithms, I think, but it depends on the job. So, all right, what else we got? I think this, this last one we have on the list, but uh, I recently wrote a blog article for the Live Love App blog about some of the TypeScript magic or gluten behind some of the new APIs in the most recent version of NGRX. Okay. Um, I thought we might just discuss this at a high level. I'd recommend reading the article. Uh, it's Even if you're not an NGRX developer, it actually has very little to do with NGRX. It's really just breaking down a lot of um, type coercion that you can do using a lot of advanced TypeScript typing features to build some really robust or strongly typed APIs. Okay. Let me, can I, can I back up a real quick before we dive in? Yes. So we're going to talk about TypeScript. We're going to talk about type coercion. Yes. Right. So we're going to talk about that, but then we're also going to talk about, I think for me anyways, there's kind of, it's kind of like, uh, you know, there's a big difference between writing a framework and using a framework. Right. Absolutely. Again, we were just back to our previous point. If I'm writing a framework, understanding memory consumption, DOM manipulation, uh, hydration, all of these things, it's like, that's really important. But yeah. if I'm using React, I kind of lean on the framework to have handled some of that for me to do some of that efficient DOM manipulation. And so I could, ju I just need to know JSX and JavaScript and node or npm or whatever it is right, uh, right to get my my job done so there's kind of two parts of typescript too right if i'm using a typescript library i know that i get type inferencing and i can have type generics and i maybe reach for some of these utility types like record or pick or omit but then when i'm writing a javascript or a typescript library with typescript annotations or whatever you want to call it declarations i gotta have a that's a, a little bit different task, right? I need to understand some of the nuances around TypeScript. That's right. So tell us a little bit more about the blog post and what was the goal of the task that you were set out to do? Yeah, so I think you're hitting a lot of ideas that I regularly consider when I'm building open source libraries or tools for other developers. And it's something that I, I think I wanna write more about in the future um, is ergonomics of an API. And I think it's something that as developers using libraries, we don't have to think too much about, or maybe we have an intuitive understanding of, but haven't, mm -hmm. haven't built an explicit understanding. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you install this package you find off of NPM and you try to use it and it feels frustrating or clunky mm -hmm. to use, or maybe it doesn't ship with type definitions, or maybe the type definitions are wrong or frustrating or something yep. about the API doesn't quite work. Okay. We've been there. Like we've all been there probably. Yeah. Yep. And then sometimes you install that NPM package and it's just like, it's just Butter. wonderful. Butter. Yeah. It's just smooth. You understand how things are named, like things are named correctly. Mm -hmm. Intuitive, I right? Start, I yeah, can almost it's guess. Intuitive. Exactly. Yeah. And especially with TypeScript, not only is the API intuitive, it's strongly typed and things are just being inferred correctly. Mm -hmm. And uh, the types that you're getting back out of functions match your expectation. Yep. Uh, when you're writing open source or really any tool for developers, I think you need to have an explicit understanding of what's going on there, which is that APIs, just like any user interface, has usability concerns mm -hmm. or constraints. You have to think a lot about the user experience. And for a good TypeScript library, I think a big, big part of the user experience story is the types. Um, I'm not gonna, there's, there's a grid framework that you and I use that we were just debugging some types on recently. 
Um, types matter with libraries. We want libraries to ship really great types in general. Yeah, I agree. I'm a strong proponent of TypeScript, right? And types. It's so great. It's helpful as a developer and lets me move faster, increases my velocity. If you ask me, yeah. um, it's my, my code is more type safe. I could catch bugs at build time rather than at runtime. Right. Um, that one of my favorite uh, things that came out, I think this is maybe two years old now, but Microsoft like research group did this study. And I've talked about this in talks before, but I'll quickly reiterate. Microsoft did this study where they looked on open source libraries on GitHub and they analyzed issues that had been closed. And then they analyzed those closed issues to determine whether that issue would have been caught at build time before it actually got into the library and published as part of like a production you know, package. And 15% of those issues would have been caught by TypeScript ahead of time. So I think that's a really uh, kind of important point to make. Yeah, so that means that like if you can get your types correct in your library, you're gonna make developers really happy. Nothing's more frustrating for me than like calling an API from a library I've installed and I'm getting really confusing or weird error messages back out of yeah. it from the TypeScript yeah. compiler. Right. Or worse, the types are really not that great and there's a lot of innies littered all over it and mm -hmm. I'm not getting any type checking anymore from this library because it's just really right. nailed on strongly typing. Right, agreed. So the purpose of this article was just to kind of highlight what that's like as a library developer. What are some of the things that we are trying to do on the NGRX team to give developers really ergonomic APIs that are strongly typed? Mm -hmm. So in NGRX or the most recent version of NGRX, there's a new API called Create Action Group and it lets you or reduces the amount of code you have to write to set up a group of actions or action creators. And it has to do some really nifty type magic to convert some of the strings you pass into this API into names of functions you can then call later. Um, and so yeah, it's, it's gonna be hard to talk about it at a podcast level. So I'm glad we're talking about it at a high level. But basically at a very high level, this blog post is just kind of going through and really breaking it down step by step, what some of that string coercion looks like, not at runtime level, but at the type level. How do we coerce okay. or convert these strings from one format into another format so that when developers call these APIs, they're getting back strongly typed objects that work in a way that is predictable from how they call it the API. So tell me a little bit more about this TypeScript string. Did you call it coercion or I forget what you called it. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about this and, and why, why, I mean, why would a developer ever reach for this? Yeah. So I don't think uh, developers day to day will have to reach for this. I think this is really gonna come up when you're building libraries, but there's plenty of developers that are building libraries, not even in open source, but maybe internal libraries or shared code across teams where this is gonna be really useful for you to have mm -hmm. some understanding of. Um, and basically what this blog post is breaking down is in TypeScript, there's a difference between strings and string literal types. Okay, explain that. So a string is what it says on the tin. It's any sequence of characters wrapped up in some quotes as far as JavaScript is concerned. Any old string. Right. So you can have a TypeScript function that says that my first argument needs to be of type string and I'm gonna return you a string and it can be any string in the world. Any string in the world, whatever I give it. And I know I'm gonna get a string back, some string. Okay. Yeah, we don't know what the string's gonna be, but we get back some string. TypeScript has a, another kind of type called a string literal type. Okay. And these are different. These are very specific strings. So you can say, um, instead of, hey, this function's first argument is of type string, you could say, this function's first argument is the word cat. And every time someone calls that function, they have to provide a string that has the word cat in it. Yeah, C-A-T. Very specifically, C-A-T. Okay. Cannot be any other string. It must be the word cat. Even if they don't like cats, even if they're yeah. a dog lover, they got to call this function. And they got to, right. okay, got it. Um, in this example, that's not particularly useful, but you could combine string literal types with the 
type union operator, the single bar, to mm -hmm. create functions that accept a subset or a specific set of strings. Okay. So if we we're going to have like a function called pet and you wanted to uh, provide it an animal that you could pet, we could say, okay, you can pet a cat as a string literal type or a dog as a string literal type or a snake as a string literal type. Or a donkey. Or a donkey. Yeah. You can kind of okay. say, okay, I don't accept just any old string. It must be one of these three or four specific strings if you want to call this function. That makes a lot of sense because then as a developer, I know that when I call the pet function, I could give it these things. I can't just say what pet my llama because it doesn't support petting of llamas. Right. Okay. Which I don't know why it wouldn't because who wouldn't want to pet a llama, but go ahead. <laughs> so for the create action group API, this comes up because we want developers to describe all of the events in the action group. We're trying to promote event sourcing as much as possible. Um, if you've not heard of Good Action Hygiene and you're a curious NGX developer, go watch Good Action Hygiene on YouTube. Um, but when you, as a developer, are calling Create Action Group, you're going to give it a list of events that belong to this group. And we wanted developers to be able to write out sentences for these events. So like login success or Understood. added item to cart and just write that out as a sentence. Understood. The fun part of this is that let's say you have an event in this event list called add item to cart. What we want to give you back is a function called add item to cart. And the difference is when you write oh. out the sentence add item to cart, you're going to do it with casing and spaces in between. Right? Of if course. That makes writing sense. Writing as an English sentence. But we want to give you back a good JavaScript function that's Lower called- Lower case which is me camel case, add item to cart. No spaces, the first letter's lowercase. Every word after that starts with a uppercase first letter. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I could do this at build time. Uh, excuse me, Good. run time. Yeah. I can maybe, uh, yeah, I can make an array, take my string and split it on spaces and you know capitalize and return this nice lower camel case string. But you're talking about doing this with TypeScript types. Right. Okay, mind blown, continue. And that's where some of these really tricky TypeScript utilities come up that are being introduced in this article is like, how do we get from this sentence that you provide us to the name of a function at the type level so that when you call create action group, you get back a typed object that includes this function on that object. Okay, I gotta go read this article. I actually have already, but as a listener, I got to be thinking, this is interesting. This is a unique problem to solve as yeah, a library exactly. author. Exactly. So what is, do does, type types, does TypeScript help me at all with this? I mean, I know, so I mentioned some of the utility types before that maybe people might be familiar with, like record, omit, pick. Um, I don't know, there's other ones too, right? Does TypeScript give me some of these out of the box that do this yeah. template or this string, template. what do you call it, string literal? Yeah, string literal, exactly. So how do I do this? So it gives you a couple of built-in utilities for doing some very basic string manipulation on string literal types. So there's like a lowercase and an uppercase utility that you can make use of that will basically, says on the 10, uppercase and lowercase string literal types. Great. But there's not like a convert this whole sentence into a camel-cased string literal type. Mike, you should submit a PR. <laughs> Well, I've already script. written the code, so maybe I, maybe I should submit the PR. I don't know how how often this comes up. I don't know developers, but it's, but it's very specific to NGRX. Yeah. And so there's kind of six steps that the article breaks down that, that the NGRX code base goes through to get there. Um, you know, we essentially start with that string literal type. Yeah. We trim it at the type level, which means we remove any surrounding white space from your sentence that you might have of course. accidentally introduced. So we trim it. Of course. We make the whole sentence lowercase. Okay. We split the string little type into each individual word. So we've got each word as separate string little types. From there, we can title case each segment of that string. So now that we've got okay. every word, we can title case all the words. Okay. We can remove the spaces by joining them all back together. 
Oh boy. And then we lowercase the first letter. And now we've taken the sentence that was in whatever casing you wanted with all the spaces you wanted and turned it into a camel cased single word ready to be used as the type for a function we're going to get back to you. Wow. I think two things come to mind as a result of hearing this and reading the blog article and learning this from you, Mike, is first of all, um, some of this TypeScript is it's kind of heady, can be kind of challenging. So yeah. as far as it might not be something that as even TypeScript or Angular or React developers or Vue or Svelte, we're not familiar with using some of these things. So I think that's really fun and challenging and interesting to learn about. But then secondly, this really makes me appreciate as a user of a library, like whether it's MGRX or Angular or React or all, you know any other kind of framework, um, it really helps me to appreciate the length to which library authors go to to make these ergonomics really helpful for me. Yeah, so I think it's an interesting set of problems to try and solve at the type level. Hopefully, it helps you appreciate some of the links that library authors go through who really are caring about ergonomics to produce easy to use APIs that are intuitive and give you back the right types because it's certainly a challenge. Um, yeah. It's a lot of fun though too. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you, first of all, sharing this. I think this blog article is going to be very interesting to folks because they're going to get a kind of a, you know, under the hood, peel back the layers, kind of look into how this works and also learn some additional things about using TypeScript and some of these utility types and how to do this. Um, and then, you know, thank you for also for contributing to uh, open source in this manner. Uh, so that way we can use create action group and get back some really strongly typed function names based on the string literals that we provide. So Absolutely. very cool. Yeah. So if you want to check it out, it's called the TypeScript gluten behind Injex Create Action Group. You can find it at liveloveapp.com. Just go to the blog and it'll be one of the more recent blog posts. Cool, man. Appreciate it. Yep. So Mike, what are you doing these days to find joy? Well, uh, my friends and I had a really fun idea. It's, you know, we're in the middle of the legendary summers, the Pacific Northwest. And a little warm. It's a little warm, despite a couple of heat waves here and there. It has been true to its name, legendary, where it feels like every day is like 80 degrees and something but sunshine and blue sky. Nice. And so my friends thought it'd be fun to do a picnic on Mount Tabor. For those who have not been to Portland, Mount Tabor is not a very big mountain. Uh, I don't even know if it actually counts as a mountain or not. but it's I a, don't think it does. It's a butte. It's, a, yeah. it was, it's like a dead volcano or whatever they call that. Dormant volcano. It's a, it's a very lovely big hill that overlooks yes. Portland. Yes, yes, yes. It would be in the southeast part of the city. And yeah. there's a lovely park on the top of it. And so what we chose to do is we did a rainbow picnic on Mount Tabor where each couple was responsible for bringing a food of every color of the rainbow. Wait, everybody had to bring every color of the rainbow? Every couple had to bring Whoa, every color of that's the rainbow. a lot that is a <laughs> lot, a of, lot food. of food I mean, there's there's like what is it 10 million or 12 million colors in the full rainbow spectrum so you i mean <laughs> you guys must have that must have been quite the feast mike we're feeding the whole town <laughs> it sounds no, like we only it. did we only did the roy g biv the roy g biv uh, <laughs> the roy g biv so we're responsible for red orange yellow green blue indigo and violet how did you find indigo food? Ah, see, that's where a little bit of creativity comes to play. Uh, okay. This was an alcohol-friendly event, and so we brought a pre-made vat of aviators. What are the aviations? I can't remember what the proper name uh, of the cocktail yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, But it's the one that has uh, creme de violet in it. Uh, it's aviation, and so creme de violet okay. can, can vary in shades of... Um, from blues to purples. And so we got a rather indigo shade of creme de violet. And In made indigo shade. Did, did you bring like a color swatch with you when you went to the booze <laughs> store? Just look, just pull it up and look at this in the sunlight, you know. <laughs> How close is this? I mean, it's like you could blue curacao would get you kind of close, but it's a little too light for indigo. Right, I mean, right. and yeah. it's gonna be kind of darker. So, creme de violet was the answer to that. 
Which would sound like you should do violet with it, but we did we did indigo. It does. Okay. Well, for the violet, we made a fruity pebbles cheesecake. So we did fruity pebble crust, almost like we're making graham cracker crust, but instead of graham crackers, we used fruity pebbles. And then the cheesecake filling was uh, food colored, the violet. Got it. We cheated on the red, yellow, green, and blue. Uh, For the red, we made a habanero salsa. For the yellow, we made a mango chutney. And yeah. for the green, we made guacamole, and then we brought blue corn tortilla chips. So that way, you that's the corn pretty fantastic. Chips three things to dip it into. I thought that's pretty clever. That is pretty clever. And then for yeah. the orange, we made deviled eggs. Oh, nice! Yeah, Easy. yeah. So we had all the colors I would, covered. I would think that blue food is probably the hardest. And that's why we're like, well, there's blue corn tortilla chips. Let's just make right. some different things you could dip right. those chips into. There's, there's not a lot of other things in the grocery store that I can think of that are blue necessarily. I mean, right. that's a good yeah. one to, that you guys went for the blue corn uh, tortilla chips. Cause like, I don't know, vegetables, generally not blue. <laughs> um, you know, proteins, generally not, not blue. blue. <laughs> Maybe in temperature. Color. <laughs> I guess you could do like blue cheese, but blue cheese, even that's not like completely blue. blue. Yeah, no, I think the I'm, obvious would have been like blueberries or, you know, oh, blueberries. trying to get some of yes. the fruits. There you go. Is where yeah. you can start getting yeah, some yeah, of those yeah. colors. Yeah. Um, yeah. But no, we went for the, we went for the dippable approach. <laughs> and then I've got my, my rainbow Pendleton. I've got my rainbow Nikes. I've got my rainbow tattoo. I was kind of, I was decked out, ready to show up and themed up, participate in the rainbow picture. Yeah. Nice. And, where, and you guys, you did this on a section of Mount Tabor. Did you do it in the yeah. section where you can uh, look out and see the city of Portland? Yeah. Yeah. It kind of was over Hawthorne. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. Cool, man. So a little bit of a hike up, but a great little day throughout the, throughout the picnic blanket. Did you drinks, walk? You, you walked all the way up? Walked all the way up. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice little hike up. Probably like what? 700 feet, 800 feet yeah. elevation. That's nice. Uh, yeah, something like that. With that much food on you, it's a bit of a hike, but no big deal. Ooh, you gotta take care of. That's true. That's true. Did everybody hike it or just, just you? We all hiked it up. Okay. So everybody met at your place and, and walked all the way up? Yep. Nice. So it's a great little hike day. to get there, too. It's another, it's like a mile. Well, we drove to, to the base of it, to be clear. We didn't do it from my apartment. Oh, you cheated. Okay. We didn't walk. <laughs> <laughs> okay we did uh, all the elevation none of the distance that's true that's true <laughs> and then slit that had your cocktails and slid back down the hill and got in the car <laughs> i think we uh took a nap in that field after all that food and then got in the car yeah it sounds like a lot of food yeah for sure very nice booze, man. to be honest a lot of food. Uh, what about you what are you doing to find joy well, uh, we celebrated our one-year uh, anniversary for Live Love App. So we oh, right. officially we have been in business. We did do that. Uh, so you came out to Bend. We had a nice time. Got to go for a hike. It was great. No. Yeah, got to celebrate. Mountain bike. Mountain bike. Oh, that's right. Mountain bike. Yes. Sorry. It happened just <laughs> yesterday, I swear. <laughs> and uh, um, It was my first ever time mountain biking because we're always hiking right. when we're in Bend together. But this time. That's you- true. Let me it's your true, buddy's yeah. bicycle, and we went and did, yeah. I think, about 14 miles of trail on a blue. We did a blue, yep. So we went to Phil's trailhead, and then we did, uh, I think we did Ben's to Voodoo to Kent's, I think, something like that. Yeah. Um, so a nice little loop there. Yeah, so that was good. And uh, we generally, you, you enjoyed it, right? You enjoyed the mountain biking? I had a great time. I'm ready to go again, to be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah, it's super fun. It's a good exercise, if you will, calorie burn. It's a lot of fun. Um, blues are good because not a whole lot of technical challenges, uh, but still a little bit of elevation gain, a couple of uh, technical spots here and there. So yep. it was good. Yeah, we had a nice nice bike ride. And then we went out and got some steaks. Got some nice steaks. That was good. Splurged a little uh, bit. Yeah, we splurged. We had a really nice meal together. I can't remember yeah, the name nice. of the spot that we went to, but yeah, it was just a really nice steakhouse in downtown Bend. Yeah, that was nice. Yeah. You had pickled watermelon rind in your salad. 
and I had. I do remember that. I never had that before. Yeah. (laughs) And then the foie gras, what was it again? I forget the foie gras. It was like a foie, an ethically sourced foie gras. I want to highlight right now. (laughs) Ethically sourced foie gras. It is a butterscotch pudding made with foie gras. That's right. A butterscotch. It was such an interesting, like, combination of flavors. It was quite, it was was a very full palate. Let's put it that way, is, is how I recall. So, yeah, no, it was good. You know, it always... You know, uh, you get busy doing work and work is work and, you know, you're focused on, you know, daily tasks and long-term goals and all these things. And it feels nice to be able to step back once in a while and just appreciate that moment and say, hey, you know, here's us. So it was good. It was good. It felt good to kind of mark that as well as to celebrate it. Um, And we have a lot to be thankful for uh, good clients and we've worked with good people. And so there's definitely a lot of thanks around that and a lot of celebration and uh, we certainly hope for continued success in that regard so yeah Yeah. so that was definitely a great opportunity for us to kind of find joy and to uh, celebrate um, kind of a year working together and uh, hopefully uh, hopefully we'll have many more years to celebrate in the future for sure well very cool um i think that's a wrap i think we we did a podcast episode so appreciate your time mike as always my valiant and faithful (laughs) co-host and uh to the listener we will see you next time see y'all have a great day